This is the sixth talk in a series of talks on the seven virtues, titled Mercy, recorded April 14, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, mercy, which is the uh, one of the seven uh, virtues that uh, you'll find in all mystical traditions. And this is the uh, sixth in a series of talks. Uh, we've been going through them one a month. Courage, humility, justice, patience, gratitude, mercy, and joy. And mercy is most directly associated with the sixth stage of a spiritual path, kenosis. And in fact, you could say that in the stage of kenosis, mercy is the only virtue present. Kenosis is a rather mysterious uh, stage and term here, and we're going to come back to it a little bit later here. Uh, but in any case, like all other virtues, when I say it's associated with one stage, it doesn't mean that it's only practiced in that stage. And by the way, even when I talk about different stages on a spiritual path, these are this is just a, a way of organizing material, more or less. It doesn't mean that everybody goes through mechanically one, two, three, four, five, six stages. These are generally what most seekers in most traditions go through. And you'll find most traditions have some idea of this. In the uh, Buddhist tradition and various uh, schools of Buddhism, you'll have eight stages or ten stages. I think some of the Tibetans have 14 stages. Uh, Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic, uh, talks about seven stages and so forth. So these are sort of general patterns that most seekers go through, but don't take it too mechanically, please. Uh, and in any case, all the virtues uh, should uh, you should start to try to practice them at the very beginning of a path, and not just wait for some particular stage. And so then what is mercy? And actually, we could say mercy is a part of a set of virtues, uh, like kindness, generosity, uh, benevolence, altruism, uh, all uh, virtues that manifest this quality that is fundamental to all mystical paths of selfless love and compassion. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to list all the virtues there are, I mean, I've got seven here, but, you know, they're... Uh, 50 or so you could think of. They're all, uh, I try to take one virtue like, or one name like mercy and subsume all these under it. So each one has a slightly different nuance. Generosity is a little bit different than uh, kindness and so forth. The point is though that this particular set of virtues, anything that has to do with manifesting, actually manifesting love and compassion is extremely important on a mystical path. When we talk about love and compassion, which we do a lot, uh, when we read about it and so forth, these are virtues give you clues of actually how to put them into practice. And so whenever we actually act, behave kindly, uh, an act, a specific act to somebody, or a generosity, we give something to somebody, whatever, we are actually beginning to manifest this quality. Now, it's really important not to wait until you feel like being kind or generous or merciful to do it. If you just wait until you feel like it, it's, that's just business as usual. That's what everybody does, you know. What 
a mythical path is about is a, is about actually doing practices, trying to put this into action, not just when you have a, a whim to do it, but actually in a concentrated, uh, concerted sort of uh, way uh, to make this concerted effort. Of course, the problem is we are conditioned to believe that happiness comes from enhancing and protecting ourselves. It's a deep conditioning. It's not just a philosophy and a belief. It's it's condition built into our very experience. And this means that we're really afraid of acting selflessly. We're truly afraid of love and compassion. To really experience and act on love and compassion, because that really means to uh, to act selflessly. We think almost instinctively that we're going to suffer more. I'll become victimized. Uh, people will take advantage of me and so forth. And there's this almost knee-jerk reaction to draw back in to protect, to protect. So acting on these virtues before you feel like it is actually what releases this love and compassion. And by the way, from a mystical point of view, love and compassion aren't emotions you have to generate. It's really the nature of who you actually are. It's already there in a certain sense. And what we have to do is uh, disarm. It's like unilateral disarmament. We have to disarm ourselves to allow it to just flow out. And then it's very natural. It's very spontaneous. So if we begin to act kindly to people, generously to people, mercifully to people, and so forth, uh, we begin to experience, little by little, our own experience. We see this makes us happier. To act selflessly makes us happier, really, than to act selfishly. And it's through our own experience that we overcome this fear. Not by any teaching and not by any uh, teacher getting up and saying anything. All a teacher can do is point this out. Why don't you try this, you know? And if you try it in little ways, instead of trying to go out and be a, a saint overnight, little ways, through that experience, you begin to see that old cliche that virtue is its own reward is true. It makes you happier. It's just you feel better being kind and generous rather than being paranoid and protective. So it's the, the um, uh, mechanics here are really very simple. The more we act kindly and generously and so forth, the more we cultivate this love and compassion. That's what cultivating love and compassion is really about. Uh, Hasidic master Menahem Nahum uh, sums this principle up, this principle of the more you act, the more you release this, this divine love and compassion, we could say. As a person measures out, so it is measured out to him. If one here below acts in accord with a certain quality, that same quality is aroused above. If a person acts mercifully in this world, mercy is called forth from above. It is, in fact, in this way that the forces of judgment are transformed. It's The forces of judgment here are your own mind, your own judgmental mind. This is why Jesus says, judge not, or at least you be judged. He's not talking about the great daddy in the sky. He's pointing to a very a, a profound psychological truth. If you're a, judge, a very judgmental person, you're judging everybody else, that same judgment is a two-edged sword. You'll be judging yourself all the time. It, it, you cannot escape that. And then he says, the opposite, God forbid, happens in the same way. So meaning if the more uh, 
the more you act out of fear, out of hatred, out of revenge, then those forces are called forth in you. This is, in the East, what is what karma is all about, this conditioning. You know, we, we act our certain deeds, have certain consequences, and it's just building up a habit, a pattern. And then the more you do it, of course, the harder it is to break. So acting selflessly it goes against these, these selfish, almost instincts we have. Uh, so that's why we really need to start really from the beginning of the path cultivating love and compassion. In fact, most traditions uh, will, that's the first step. You know, Jesus, 75% of his teachings are, are about this. Very little teachings, practices about meditation and so forth. Most of this just hammering over and over again, you know, love your neighbor, be kind to your neighbor. He gives very specific uh, examples, you know. If your neighbor wants you to, if somebody wants you to walk a mile with them, go two miles and go out of your way, extend yourself. In uh, Tibetan Buddhism particularly, if you start practicing uh, Tibetan Buddhism, the, right, the first thing they do is start, uh, on your, start you on a practice of arousing bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment, the compassionate awakened mind. And there are all sorts of uh, specific practices they have. So this is stressed very important from the very beginning. Now, what is then exactly what do we mean by mercy? I mean, we have this set of uh, virtues, generosity and kindness and so forth, that are all manifesting this quality of selfless love and compassion. And again, these aren't hard and fast distinctions, but I think mercy has a kind of a sharper quality. It's a, it's a good word. It's a strong word. You don't hear that so much anymore. And I think it's really um, closer to forgiveness, which is another one of these virtues that uh, manifests love and compassion. And in fact, in a certain sense, Mercy grows out of forgiveness. Uh, and forgiveness, of course, in all uh, mystical traditions, is a very important uh, uh, virtue to practice. Uh, Jesus was asked about this. Uh, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said unto him, I say not seven times, but seventy times seven, which is a way of saying, you know, no end to it, really. Now, it's very important, notice he didn't say, only forgive your brother or sister if they deserve it, if they deserve to be forgiven. And most people are quite willing to forgive if they get something back, if they feel the person deserves to be forgiven. If the person comes to them and says, oh, your, your partner, your spouse comes to you and say, oh, honey, I'm really sorry that I didn't mean to say that. And you say, well, all right, I'll forgive you, you know. <coughs> But this is a, and this of course is better than not forgiving, but this is uh, entering into a little um, uh, commerce here, you know, you'll, you'll give a little forgiveness if, if you uh, are given a little contrition and so forth, and you, you know, it becomes, love here becomes a counter in a game of a sort of relationship monopoly or something. So it's, it's really important that a spiritual practitioners to practice forgiveness without regard to whether a person deserves it or not. And for a very, if you almost like selfish reason, the main purpose from a spiritual point of view of forgiveness is for your own benefit. Because forgiveness is a way of getting rid of grudges, resentments, and all those things that you hang on to. That what caused you suffering. So it's nice for the person to be forgiven and feel forgiven, but really it's for you. The more you hold on to grudges and resentments and that sort of thing, the more you're going to suffer.
if it's going to be spiritually beneficial, you have to practice forgiveness despite the fact of whether somebody deserves to be forgiven or not. And forgiveness is very important uh, in terms of your own past. In order to move forward on a spiritual path, at a certain point you really have to come to terms with your own past. That is, your parents, your upbringing, society, all the things you blame for why you're so miserable today or whatever problems you have. And the forgiveness is the way to, to really to cut through that. And really what it's about is letting go of the past. And again, it's, it has nothing to do with being uh, justified. You may be right to resent your parents the way you were brought up. Do you know? You may be right to resent society uh, or some aspect of your upbringing. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? If you insist on being right, fine, but you're going to be miserable. So again, it's, it's, not, it's not a question of whether your parents deserve to be forgiven, and it's not a question that you're not justified that things were done to you. But the forgiveness is a way of cutting through that and letting that go. Uh, so that you can move on. Otherwise, you're, you know, stuck in the past. The Buddha said very beautifully, he said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, proceed to the opposite shore with a free mind, leaving all suffering behind. And again, it's this quality of freedom, of cutting loose from the, the chains that bind us. And those are, you know, the conditioning, the resentments, the grudges, the, da, the blame, and so forth. Letting go of the past is one of the most powerful ways to do that is really to practice forgiveness. And, and I suggest, by the way, this is something that, you know, you can do as a, uh, as a practice, a meditation practice. Even if your parents are dead, sit down and in your own mind, go over all the things that, you know, that you resent about the way you were brought up, all the things you're angry about. And don't, and fine if you, if you're justified in it, but each one understand that your parents are human beings too. And they were, they had their conditioning. They were brought up in certain ways. Do you know what I mean? This chain of cause and effect goes all the way back to amoebas and beyond. So there's no, there's no way to break it except in the present now. And, and try to really deeply feel that, just letting it go, just, you know, forgiving and uh, putting it to rest. Now, forgiveness, however, is usually, we think of as something that happens after the fact. It's a virtue we put into practice after the fact. Somebody's done you dirty, and so you turn around and forgive them. Mercy is very closely related to forgiveness, but it has more to do with the present, with the present situation, the situation you find yourself in. And usually an opportunity to practice mercy arises when you're in a position of power to harm someone and you feel justified in doing so and may be justified in doing so. That's very important to, to note. Some of the big examples we think of are like judges being merciful with criminals, you know. The, the, the poor criminal deserves 10 years in jail, but the, he throws himself on the mercy of the court and gets, you know, a year and then probation or something. Uh, we think of soldiers in war showing mercy to vanquished enemies that have fought and killed their friends and so forth. But if they're merciful, they don't slaughter them all. Maybe they just sell them into slavery or something, in the old days anyway. But we can really think of... Uh, 
of course, hopefully uh, will always be the case, that pertain to our own life, some more everyday sorts of examples. For instance, uh, how you treat employees who have goofed up. Or people, if you don't have any employees, uh, people in where you're in a, a social position of slight power over them. For instance, a waiter or a waitress who's waiting on you, or a clerk who's helping you. You're in slight power over them because if you complain to the boss or you yell at them, make a stink, you get them in trouble. You have, whether you like it or not, you are in that position. So what does it mean to practice mercy in those situations? Let's take a situation where uh, somebody, uh, let's say you're in a, a restaurant and a, a waiter's very upset. You can tell he's had a rough day. Do you know what I mean? He spills your soup. He brings out the wrong thing. Right in that moment, you have a, a, a choice of how you're going to react. If you're going to be uh, vengeful and say, oh, I'm not going to give him a tip, you know, and so forth. Uh, or if you're going to then get rude or you're going to complain and all that, that's not being merciful. One, one way to be merciful might be just to say, hey, why don't you sit down for a minute? <laughs> Take three deep breaths. It's okay. We don't mind you. Probably. We understand you're having a bad day. Do you know what I mean? That is an act of mercy in that situation. It's not forgiveness. They haven't really done anything, but it's right in the situation. What are some other situations you can think of that would call for mercy in this sense that we're talking about? Anybody can think of anything? Every day. Well, if somebody should blow a big fart here, we'd all pretend we didn't notice it, and that would be an act of mercy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it could be. Yes, it could be. When somebody's embarrassed, and, and you know, I think this is probably more true when, especially like at teenagers, you know, how teenagers are vicious with each other sometimes. They can be really cruel, uh, you know, razzing each other. I think that's what we used to call it anyway in my day. Uh, but that's a very good thing. Uh, a very good example, not just that, but those little insults that are merciless. You know, you can, you can be with somebody and, uh, in a work situation and you can say that that person is really merciless with this poor, I don't know, somebody who's uh, learning, trying to learn on the job training from them or something like that. So that's really a very good example. If your neighbor um, just lost their job, you know, they're having some troubles, you know, going over and giving them a casserole or something like that. Yeah, that would be more generosity and kindness because it's, mercy has this quality, somebody's sort of done something to you. It's, and you're refraining from taking revenge and in fact, doing the opposite, trying to find some way to help them or alleviate well, it, you know what I mean? We, just to go back to that, our neighbor stole my bike. <laughs> just took his bike and he's 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 lost everything in his life and he's drowning in drugs and um you know, I do. I just want to go into his house and find the, the biggest, bestest, most expensive thing he has and take he's taken something very precious <laughs> from us, I mean, a horse, you know. And <laughs> and, but yeah, bringing him a casserole—I <laughs> haven't thought of that. Yeah. Let me say this: this is a very good example because mercy does not mean, socially speaking, throwing justice out the window necessarily, mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily mean not punishing people, especially like children. Sometimes it's an act of mercy to intervene in a very strong way. Right. It has, first of all, most important from a spiritual point of view, the intention, your intention. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. Are you doing it to get revenge because you want revenge? Or are you doing it looking at the person, their situation? Mm -hmm. So one thing, you know, you, I mean, you might go over with a casserole and all that and sit down and say, look, I understand you got a problem. You stole my bike and all that. Uh, and I'm going to give you a chance to, you know, I'm not going to call the police, you know, whatever. I'm going to give you a chance to 
uh, return it, return it, or you know, pay it, pay me off a little bit. Yeah, and that's sort of what we did. Yeah. I mean, actually, a pastor came over to his house, um, to to a friend of his father's who was in New York to try and somehow this guy is just groping. He needs to know that someone cares about him, and and I went out and talked to the pastor for a long time and shared with him everything I knew about this person because for this reason, just so that this pastor can, whoever, this person can come and, and, and somehow get this guy into the next phase. So this is, this is a very good example of, of a mercy, Not a situation. I wanted to screw him. Yeah. Know, there's been pity in our hearts this whole time. There's been, you know, this guy needs help. When someone so does you something dirty, help. and instead of responding with vengeance, oh, I'm going to lock him up and throw away the key, you respond... With wisdom, with skillfully, what's the best way I can, you know, help him? Mm -hmm. It may at some point, you know, at some point it's it's good for people to get caught, especially younger That's people in a you know life of crime. It can shake them up and turn them around. You, I'm curious at some point, can you say a little bit about accountability? I mean, just about the mm -hmm. forgiveness of a parent, forgiveness of. It seems that I'm always curious about where accountability comes in. Like, how do you, like, I don't want to prove myself right. I know that. Actually, for myself, letting go of the grudge is what's important for me. Exactly. But then there's that, that accountability aspect, too, where it's just like you can't just let people take, take Yeah, you need other You might want to check out my tape on justice. We talked a lot about more about that oh, in that okay. tape. But that's okay. But let me answer it this way, because the Buddha had a wonderful answer to this. He was asked by a soldier, uh, does this mean we shouldn't, uh, you know, if you're attacked, you shouldn't defend yourself? Uh, does this mean criminals shouldn't be punished and all that? And the Buddha said, no. He said, I never said that uh, you shouldn't struggle for rightness, for what's right. Life is struggle. He says, but look to it that you do not do it for selfish reasons, that you're not fighting this war to get something for yourself, that you're not uh, punishing a criminal, you know, for something to get something for yourself. The whole difference is your intention. So if you can do it selflessly, then spiritually speaking, then it's part of your practice. But if you, in this case, particularly with mercy, the opposite of mercy is the seeking vengeance, which is a, it's not to get something physical, but it's to get back at, get even at, you know what I mean? And that's what mercy cuts through. Then, once there is uh, no selfish motive in there, actually, you can act much more wisely. So, because you now have a, a much more even uh, view of it, a broad view. What's the best thing for this person? And what's the best thing for society, you know, at large? The best thing for the person, you have to also take into consideration society. If somebody's running around, a serial killer, you have to lock them up for, you know, for everybody's sake, you know? Mm -hmm. But how are you doing it? I mean, are you doing it with the, with the mentality of a lynch mob? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or are you... Are you taking step by step? First thing, get this guy behind bars. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and then let's think about maybe he can be helped or not. You know, you know. But if your mind isn't clouded by feelings of revenge and hatred and malice, you, you operate much more wisely. Mm -hmm. So just accountability is very, very important socially. But here we're talking about what, are you taking the good of the whole situation into account or you, you just want some sort of personal accountability, vengeance or whatever? Uh, one of the most important places, and, and we sort of touched on this, is to exercise mercy is in, oddly, in relationships. In every relationship, there are little power things here. 
uh, again, with a, with a wife or a husband or a partner or whatever, with children, uh, you know, and often we're unconscious of this. We exact vengeance from our loved ones when they do something to hurt us, you know, our friends, you know. Uh, they, this is, you know, you've known this in your own life. You carry a little grudge. If somebody says something that hurts you a little bit, so you say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do their laundry or whatever your, you know, your thing is. The, all these little ways that are woven through our lives that we exact vengeance on people, that's a place, very subtly, but very important to start. Instead of doing that, remember mercy. You start practicing mercy in those situations. As the path progresses, it becomes easier to practice mercy, as with all, uh, all the virtues, really. We talked last time about gratitude, the virtue of gratitude, and how it's associated with the fifth stage of a spiritual path, which is a stage where, after you've done a lot of practice, you start experiencing uh, things like bliss, calmness, uh, uh, clarity, joy, beauty, uh, these sorts of experiences are unleashed spontaneously, and so you naturally respond, start to respond to life with gratitude. <coughs> life itself is a miracle. You begin to see this, experience it, not just read about it. And so it, it just calls for a, a response of gratitude. Again, uh, not because you deserved any of this stuff. It, it's because it is a gift, a grace. In the Western traditions particularly, it's seen as a gift from the divine, a grace of the divine. It's not earned, it's not deserved. And in Western traditions, they'll talk about it as a mercy, a divine mercy of God. It's just being showered out. And so, of course, if you experience that in life, you yourself naturally want to do that. You want to share that. You experience the joy of it. And so as you practice more and more, what began as something uh, you have to almost overcome your own resistance, uh, the more you do this, the more you practice, the more the easier it is, and you start to really want to. You, you can't think of any other way to live, actually. We also said last time about the uh, fifth stage that... Uh, not only does the seeker begin to experience these consolations, as they're called, these blissful experiences and peace and calm as mercies, gifts, graces, but also trials and tribulations and suffering, because they're your greatest teachers. And this is a real turning point on the path. Once you be can begin to see that uh, difficulties and situations where you have, where you encountering difficulties are themselves blessings, then everything for you is a blessing. If it's good, it's a blessing. If it's bad, it's a blessing because it's a teaching. And so the whole, the, your whole attitude uh, of life starts to shift and starts to transcend this dualistic way of seeing the world as this, some things are good and some things are bad. You begin to see it all as uh, an unfolding of, and again in Western traditions they'd say, of a divine mercy. When you really begin to understand this, and not just understand it, but to experience it, uh, this is really when the whole life experience is transformed. And then, because you feel like a recipient of this mercy, you're, uh, you're more anxious to, to give it out, to share it. There's a wonderful uh, Hasidic story that sort of demonstrates this. It's about a merchant who was not doing so hot, and he had heard that if you give to a rabbi, if you're generous, then God's going to bestow bounty on you. 
So he lived in a you know small town in Poland. So there was a lowly little rabbi in the town. So he thought he'd try this out. So he starts donating money to the rabbi every week. And sure enough, his business picks up. Uh, he's thriving. He's getting rich. And he thinks, ooh, he says, this really works. If I give to this lowly rabbi, what if I give to some great rabbi? So he starts sending gifts off to uh, Warsaw, where there's this great, you know, noble rabbi. And uh, his business starts to decline a little bit. And he can't figure this out. So he goes to see the great rabbi and says, um, and he explains to him what happened. You know, he said, I, I, st- I gave, started giving these gifts to this little rabbi and my business thrived. And I thought, well, I'd give to you, you know. And the rabbi says, well, he said, when you became particular about who you bestowed gifts upon, God became particular. <laughs> so this is this, what I mean about this quality of, you know, sharing out. Whether people deserve it or not, you know, cutting through all that. Now, mercy really blossoms in this stage, this fifth stage. But as I said in the beginning, it's really directly or uh, fully associated with the sixth stage because uh, that's all there is here. And let me see if I can explain this a little bit anyway. The sixth stage I call kenosis. What does kenosis mean? It's a Greek word, and it means to. it's the act of emptying. And I didn't know this or uh, at the time. I mean, I, I ran across this word, and then I, I borrowed it, and I did not realize that uh, how common it was in the tradition and the experience of mystics until I started reading more and more mystics. And it's it's in virtually every account that's a full blown account. Uh, the Christians use it technically to mean uh, the act of of. Christ emptying himself of divinity in order to take on human form, and or uh, Christians <coughs> emptying themselves of uh, selfhood to become servants of God. So it, it has a technical meaning within Christianity. It's a, it comes from the uh, ancient Greek. But um, I use it in a much broader sense here. But this the central idea of this emptying is what's important here. At the last stage of a spiritual path, or let me say there comes a stage where everything comes to a stop. Everything dries up. The whole path, all the progress, all the things you're doing come to a complete standstill. It's like the train comes shrieking to a halt. Abin Arabi writes about this. As I said, he's a Sufi. He says, um, true guidance means being guided to bewilderment that he might know that the whole affair of God is perplexity. Zen master Hakun says of the last stages of Zen practice, like a man hanging over a precipice, he is completely at a, at a loss what to do next. Except for occasional feelings of uneasiness and despair, it is like death itself. Catherine of Genoa was a great Christian mystic. She writes, Incapable of feeling any joy, my soul seemed to be stifled in melancholy, completely at a loss as to what to do. Neither heaven nor earth offered it a place of rest, and it avoided the company of men and the remembrance of past joys and sadness. These are three. There's a Christian, Zen, and a Sufi. Right? All describing... Exact same thing here, coming to this space. St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. And actually, just uh, 
for clarity's sake, he's, he writes about two different kinds of dark night of the soul, sensual and what he calls spiritual. Uh, sensual dark night of the soul refers to, on the course of a spiritual path, m- many people go through periods of a dark night of the soul, and really, basically what it means is you sort of lose all interest in, in worldly life, but you're, uh, you don't, you're not getting these great blessings and consolations. Uh, at a certain point in a spiritual path, you become more confused. Everybody starts off thinking, you know, it's going to be clear sailing and they're going to get, uh, more increasing understanding. And actually you go through periods where you're totally confused. You don't know what you're doing. Nothing makes sense anymore. And those are those sensual dark nights. But when he talks about the spiritual dark night, he's talking about the very end of the path. And this is what he says. In such a way does this dark night of contemplation absorb and immerse the soul in itself. And so near does it bring the soul to God that it protects it and delivers it from all that is not God. Now, this is very interesting because what happens in the later stages, the stage of uh, the illumination of the heart, you have all these consolations, you have all these blissful experiences, you have all these uh, uh, blessings, and you don't realize they themselves are obstacles. That ain't it. All blissful experiences, all clarity experiences, all calmness, all of these beauties and so forth, they're all transitory and ephemeral states. A lot of people think, you know, they're going to find one state and stay in that state forever. I mean, there's no such thing. Everything is ephemeral. All things, all states change. And so seekers get attached to these consolations. And so they themselves become the obstacles. So the dark night of the soul that he's talking about, the spiritual dark night, is uh, when there are no consolations. Nothing's happening. You're doing your practices, nothing's happening, nothing. And then what he says is, really, this is a great mercy. You don't understand, you don't know that, of course. You don't experience it that way. And the way he puts it, it's protecting you from everything that is not God. You're being denied everything. So that what will be left, you'll discover, is God, is truly what you're looking for, or the great Tao, or the Brahman. We don't have to, I'm using Christian term here because that's the, the tradition he writes in. The ultimate reality. So, anyway, uh, this is why I say this is the only virtue left in this state. There are, you can't practice any virtues. Nothing seems to be a virtue. What's, what is there, though you don't quite recognize it, is this ultimate mercy that you're being given. And this is not something that you can do. You cannot put yourself in this state. This is a state of self-surrender, and this is the, one of the paradoxes of the path. Ultimately, the self cannot surrender itself. I mean, as long as the self they are surrendering, then the self is there. Uh, Meister Eckhart, as another great Christian mystic, explains this very well. He says, there is one work that remains proper and his own. He's talking about a spiritual seeker, and that is annihilation of self. Yet this annihilation and diminution of the self, however great a work it may be, will remain uncompleted unless it is God who completes it in the self. In other words, there's the sense that uh, you get all the way up to the very end, and then there comes the point where there's nothing more you can do. That's where the path is actually leading. It's actually trying to show you, exhaust all your efforts. 
and you come to this place where there is nothing more to do. Uh, in uh, in uh, Hinduism, they talk about it as the grace of the guru. Uh, in uh, Buddhism, they don't have a sense of, uh, of grace or mercy, but they say that uh, enlightenment is nothing that can be attained by human hands. All this work you do, you get to some place and it happens. It's spontaneous. There's a breakdown of this separation between subject and object, self and world, I and other. So in a certain sense, it feels like it's coming from the other side. There really is no other side because there's no true distinction here. Uh, Ramana Maharshi from a Hindu tradition describes it this way. Uh, he says, sadhanas, sadhanas are practices, set of practices. Sadhanas are needed so long as one has not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles. <laughs> Finally, there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadhanas. He is unable to pursue the much-cherished sadhanas also. It is then that God's power is realized. The self, the true self, reveals itself. So it's in this state of emptiness of... Uh, that uh, uh, Zen master Haikun said, it feels like death itself, where nothing's happening, where practices don't work. You can't meditate. You can't practice any virtues. Everything is cleared out. As St. John says, you are protected from everything but God. And when you are protected from everything but God, when everything else, you might say, is eliminated from consciousness, then that truth that's always been there, that reality, that, that your true nature is just obvious. Like the Hindus say, it's as obvious as the fruit in the palm of your hand. It's nothing mysterious. It's nothing mystical. It's not something far away. Uh, it's as close to you as the Quran says, as your own juggler vein. It's been here all along. We just haven't noticed it. We haven't noticed it because why? We're distracted by all these things. In the beginning, we're distracted by our own suffering and our own fears and all that. On a spiritual path, you begin to let all that go. And then what? You're distracted by all these spiritual experiences. So ultimately, to have all of that removed is, uh, then there's nothing left uh, but the divine. So let me tell you a little final story uh, about um, mercy uh, to, uh, to leave you with, uh, about the quality of mercy experienced uh, after this revelation. Uh, there was a Sufi named Abul Hassan, and Allah once addressed Abul Hassan, and he said, Shall I tell the people of thy spiritual drunkenness, so that being scandalized, they'll stone thee? And so established was Abul Hassan in Gnosis that he answered instantly, Shall I tell the people of thine infinite mercy, so that they will never again bow down to thee in prayer? <laughs> so I'll leave that with you as a little koan. So that's uh, my little talk on mercy this morning. Are there any questions or comments or anybody want to discuss any aspect of it? You're welcome to. One of the things that I was most intrigued with Joseph Campbell's teachings and my limited exposure to them was that he said the limitation of Christianity is that they tend to define God as this but not that. And... Um, he said, if God isn't everything, God is nothing. But that is the definition of God. And and I'm interested in that in, in relation to what you're saying about in that state you get to the place where you're protected from everything that's not God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me just amend um, Campbell's teaching because if you read the Christian mystics, 
to say God is nothing. That's one of the, the most common descriptions of God. Uh, Dionysius, one of the founders of Christian mysticism, writes about God is a star, God is a cloud, God is all this, and yet God is nothing. And the whole concept of entering the divine darkness where there is nothing uh, is how you uh, find God, so to speak. So if you look at this, you know, true a lot of Christianity, this is normally practiced, but if you read the mystics, they know very clearly, you can actually, some of them, like Meister Eckhart, they sound like Buddhists. They are talking about emptiness and shunyata, you know. And Meister Eckhart goes on and on about God is not a, a spirit. God is not an image. God is not a person. Uh, how should you worship God? You should sink down into nothingness so that your nothingness and God's nothingness is one and things like that. Anyway, uh, so I just wanted to, if you read through the Christian mystics, you find, you know, that this is true. To say that God is nothing is simply to say that God is not a thing. And the Buddhists run into a lot of trouble with this. They, they are very insistent on not using positive concepts for God because our minds latch onto them and form a thing out of them. Do you know what I mean? You hear God and, well, I mean, if you're a little simplistic, you think of Big Daddy in the sky, but then you start thinking of some, I don't know, some sort of being that's amorphous, you know, so like a science fiction being like uh, you might see on Star, uh, you know, Star Trek or whatever that uh, permeates the universe and can materialize. And It's subtle, but we, have, we make things out of this. So the Buddhists are always saying the, the ultimate nature of everything is emptiness, it's void, it's a nothing. But that sounds very nihilistic. So they themselves have to correct and say things like uh, Han Shan, I mean not Han Shan, Hui Ning, founder of Zen, says, when I, you hear me talk about the void, don't think I mean a, a, a vacuum like space. This void is so uh, enormous and uh, so great that it has room for uh, the worlds and the trees and the flowers and the, you know, so it's this, it's this emptiness that is ultimately a fullness, a total fullness, right? So to say God is nothing, it simply means that God is not a thing. Now, the, one of the ways uh, uh, ways you can pursue this, and it's fine, you find this in, in uh, the same practice in many traditions, uh, the Hindus call it neti neti, not this, not that. So you just go through everything that you think is God, that's not it. Don't, it's, it's this thing, you know, it's a, a teaching about don't fixate on anything. And it's really going through this, this process of elimination until finally there's nothing you can't there's nothing left and that's that is kenosis that is this emptiness this is mysterious this is why mysticism is called mysticism it cannot actually you know be put into words we can talk around it and try and get at it but at that place when we start talking about the ultimate truth we end up in paradox and it's just you know it's like abina rabi said the whole path leads to bewilderment and perplexity because the knowing mind is never going to understand this, the thinking mind, the conceptual mind. It cannot. The conceptual mind makes things, you know, it carves images, things. It's an idolater, you know. So it's only, you know, it's only the, the heart that can know. And I, I don't mean the feeling heart, I mean the, the um, well, let me put it this way. Gnosis is often described as knowledge through identity. All the, we usually think of knowledge as being of something, but it's to know who you are fundamentally just instantly there's no there's no separation it's not a, a subject knowing an object it's it's a recognition a realization that's why those terms are used so i don't know if that helps a little bit i mean really i can't define for you but i can sort of point it out. <coughs>
So in a certain sense, the knowledge through identification, although the mystery reveals itself, it's still in a certain sense a mystery. It's still a mystery to the ego or the conceptual mind, but it's known on a, uh, say, a level or something. You could put it that way, but it's true. It's it's like a, um, a it's like a problem dissolves. It, it wasn't really a problem to begin with. What you are trying to know, it's not like it, it could never be known because it's always going to be veiled from you or something like that. It would be like trying to figure out uh, how the sun revolves around the earth. And you, you, you grapple with this problem, and then you realize the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. Or I got a, wait, I got a better one that's more accurate. In the, in the, uh, before Copernicus, Copernicus came along, the planets, if you think of them as going around the earth, you know, they start out in the sky, and then they, over a period of months, they retrograde, they go back. If you know anything about astrology, you know, when Venus is in retrograde, you know, it's, it's going back. And then they move forward again. So they have this pattern, this of you know going through the sky and these these uh, epicycles of going back and then moving forward and then going back, and, and this was a big mystery to the astronomers at the time. How didn't you know? Has, it didn't make sense. How did this happen? And they worked out all sorts of things that these were on tracks on these invisible spheres and all sorts of stuff. And what happened? Copernicus came along and said, "Well, actually, they're not going around the Earth at all." The whole problem vanished. It's not a problem. It was never solved directly. They never figured out how these things did it, you know. They just realized it was all an appearance. It's an imaginary problem. Right. So in that sense, uh, the questions, these kinds of questions that the conceptual mind has, what Gnosis reveals is they are just like that. They're not real problems, so to speak. But it is it is a mystery in the sense that to you there's no way that you can turn around and you know, communicate. So the mystery becomes enjoyed instead of feared, I guess. You are the mystery. You know, you are the mystery. That's, you see, that's a, it's a big mystery, but you are it. That's exactly what you are. You are that mystery. <clears throat> yes, and then it's all always a mystery. I mean, it's always a miracle. I mean, it's just phenomenal. It's just the most fantastic uh, show you know, I mean, the 4th of July is nothing compared to this. It is. Look at this. You know, the greatest fireworks show in the world. What can compare to, to this? I mean, it's here. I mean, it's appearing in consciousness. It's amazing. Hey, really. We're so jaded, we don't see that. But I mean, it's just... And then... Cat is incredible. And a human being. Oh, my God. Okay, well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay around, have some tea, check out the library. And we will not see you next Sunday. <laughs> Remember, next Sunday we're closed. But after that, we'll be open every Sunday at 11 o'clock. And uh, until we see each other again, peace to you all. <laughs>